Hello there, servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And today, I have for you the UK fast-tracking citizenship for Hong Kong immigrants, Turkey training the Libyan army, and Thailand trying to become a central hub of light natural gas in Asia. All that and more coming up. Let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, Navalny, we talked about him last time, uh, he was sentenced to a two-and-a-half-year suspension uh, since we last chatted. And then Mos- um, court in Moscow intervened and gave him three-and-a-half years in jail. <laughs> no, I expected they would let him rot. We'll see if they keep upping the sentence from this point on. But, um... Well, he's gone for three and a half years now. We'll see if the hype behind him dies down or if there's, or if he still has support when he gets out in uh, 2024. Summer of 2024. And while we're still on the topic of Russia, they are set to deliver their Sputnik V vaccines to East Ukraine, uh, otherwise known as the Donbass Republic. Donbass Republic... Um, and for those who don't know, the East Ukraine is the section of the country that is held by the Russian separatist rebels. Um, so yeah, unofficial member of the Russian Federation. We, I'll, I'll be, I'll be waiting for, um, the caucuses to get their Sputnik V vaccine soon. You know, you gotta, you gotta supply your people. I mean, what? Who said that? Anyway, uh, one more thing on Russia before we move on. We have a Russian ambassador to the Council of Europe has accused the Council of having lackluster responses to a crackdown on Russian journalists in Latvia. Of course, this is kind of like a pushback to them hammering Russia on the Navalny thing. Um, So... They're basically calling BS from their point of view as, well, there's crackdown on Russian journalists in Latvia. I guess you could call them an oppressed Russian minority. Huh. I wonder, could there be a potential Russian separatist movement in Latvia? Only time will tell. I didn't expect them, I don't expect them to get to the Baltics uh, this quickly. I expect them to hunker down in either the Ukraine or Central Asia first, but they might be trying to go for the hard part or setting the stage for going after the hard part of effectively the reunification of the Soviet territories. We'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, But at the very least, they're tightening their grip on Eastern Ukraine with the vaccines. So there's that. Russia... Oh, well, this is kind of Russia, but more uh, EU. Um, The EU actually sent a diplomat, their uh, foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell. They sent him on a visit to Russia. Um, The visit didn't necessarily go very well, as it ultimately ended 
with the Russia's counterpart, calling the EU an unreliable partner. And now there's talk of um, Russia and Europe effectively diverging from one another as, well, Russia views Europe as an unreliable partner. Although, that does leave open the potential for some sort of rapprochement by the British, who are no longer a part of the EU. I don't know if they'll be able to get over the uh, culture shock effectively uh, caused by all the anti-Russia sentiments over the past, um, well, five to six years, really. But if they can, well, that opens up a massive door to potential economic links and alliances between Russia and Britain, making the British stronger. I'm sure the British would appreciate all that sweet Russian light natural gas being shipped to them, either through the Baltic Sea or through the Arctic Sea, whichever way, because Britain is an importer of light natural gas, although maybe they'll just prefer to get it from America, but I'll digress on that. Uh, During that visit, however, Russia did expel... uh, German, Polish, and Swedish diplomats. And uh, this is during their meeting with the EU's foreign policy chief. So things are things aren't exactly going well on the relations between Russia and Europe as a whole. We'll see how the Brits play their cards on this one because uh, they are actively seeking trade deals. So the potential is there, however unlikely it may seem, for a British-Russian trade deal, and effectively a rekindling of a European balance of power. The British Navy and the Russian Army effectively boxing in the EU. Ooh, the balance of power in Europe. We'll We'll have to see. It all depends on what the Brits do, really and whether or not the Russians even trust them. But, interesting things to look out for. Uh, while we're still in Europe, kind of, NATO troops plan to stay in Afghanistan even after the withdrawal deadline in May uh, that was set by the United States uh, peace agreement with the Taliban. Now, they're saying that they're staying, and they have made clear that they view the United States staying with them as being key to their intentions to stay. So it remains to be seen if President Biden will stay the course on the U.S. withdrawal. I pray that he does. Or if he decides that it's a rushed withdrawal and that we need a proper exit strategy and we return to the days of the exit strategy which I was lucky enough uh, to effectively bypass because I came of age under the Trump administration. But now, it seems that we have the possibility of getting stuck back in the Middle East again. I hope, I hope that President Biden will get us out, which really just means a continuation of what Trump was doing, but we'll have to see. And while we're still in the region, we're going to hop over to Iran, whose foreign minister, Mohammad Zarif 
uh, I mean, Mohammed Javad Zarif, uh, he has given praise to a decision by an Iraqi court that ordered the arrest of Donald Trump. <laughs> you gotta love the Middle East. Uh, Israel had a drone shot down and Hezbo uh, Hezbollah has claimed responsibility. Uh, Israel has yet to acknowledge that it was Hezbollah. So, you know, good old semantics. A uh, Nigerian city in Maiduguri is left without power for a week after a jihadist attack on the electric grid. So, getting hit with electricity. Hopefully they don't hit Nigeria's oil. But Nigeria's oil is offshore, from what I understand. So, uh, it should be safe. You never know in this day and age. But Speaking of militants, ISIS... Uh, an ISIS attack kills 19 in Syria. So, ISIS is still active. However, uh, minimally that they are compared to their height. But, still active. Uh, and still causing issues in war-torn Syria. And we'll, I guess, we'll have to see if any of the local powers eventually decide to intervene again. Like they did uh, before. Russia stepped in, Iran was buying, Iran was helping them out, and Turkey was buying their oil. So, we'll see if anyone feels the need to do anything about ISIS, or if they're just gonna leave Syria to die. But, interesting little things happening in the Middle East. Uh, we'll head back to Europe as we round out this rapid-fire news segment. Uh, where we have Poland, who has decided not to give the vaccine to the elderly. Uh, that is a peculiar decision, given that from what we know of the virus, even with its really low mortality, the elderly are at greatest risk of dying from it. So, very interesting decision there. And the Scottish independence referendum... Uh, which they've been pushing for since Brexit, really. Uh, it has been blocked by a court. Uh, the court ruled, stating that it needed to be, and this is the referendum, the referendum needed to be approved by the UK Parliament first. So basically, no, is what they're saying. <laughs> if <laughs> Basically, no, is what they're saying. I don't think... Uh, so independence referendum is going to get through, uh, even if the British have to deal with the backlash of the, what at that point will be a clear hypocrisy on that point, uh, voting for independence on the EU but not allowing an independence referendum from Scotland. I don't expect the British to hand over Scotland um, anytime soon. In fact, may maybe they'll even address the border between. Northern Ireland and Ireland by making it all Northern Ireland. We'll, we'll, we'll see where that goes. We'll see how the British Isles uh, play out over these next couple days, weeks, months, and years. Um, yeah, uh, I, I expect, personally, that the longer the UK is independent and the longer they stymie the Scottish independence referendum, the... The, um, the lower the support for Scottish independence will get as I expect the British to start doing 
progressively better and better and better now that they're able to make their own decisions and are not beholden to trade restrictions and regulations of the EU. They have significantly fewer regulations because it's just the national level instead of the national plus the EU level. So, And again, they're actively seeking trade partners right now. So we'll have to let give them a chance to get those partners and then let the deals play out for a little bit. And I do expect that it'll be a net gain for the British in the long run. And the better the British do on their own outside of the EU, and really the worse the EU does, the less support for the Scottish independence referendum there will be. So, we'll see. We'll have to pay attention in the short term to Scottish independence as this is probably going to be the strongest that they're going to be for a while. Uh, well, we can't predict the future. Maybe something will happen and they'll become super-duper nationalist and they'll try to leave again. But I digress. And last but not least, we have India raising their defense budget from the previous $47.9 billion USD to $49.6 billion. Um which doesn't look like a lot, but in context, it is the largest increase in India's defense budget in 15 years. And that is something very significant, as it is a clear reflection of the threat that they view themselves as being in. I believe a solid $18 billion is going to be for procuring new military equipment, probably from America, maybe from Russia. Uh, they kind of have a mix of both. Well, they don't really have a mix of both. But they are friendlier with America now, so they might be able to get American weapons. And they have a history of getting Russian weapons, so there's that too. So we'll see the types of equipment that they'll get. My guess is they'll probably get the world favorite, the S-400 system from Russia. And maybe some drones. That's what I expect, given the vast territory in the Himalayas that they'll be trying to monitor and survey. Drones will help with that, and S-400s will help shoot down anything the Chinese would put up um, to effectively counter them. Well, and I guess the S-400s would be used for more than just the Chinese, as there's also Pakistan and India's West, who keep who are flying jets over India, and then India flies jets over them. Every now and then a jet goes down and it creates a big stink. Cold War politics, you know. You know the deal. You know the deal. India. India is trying to get on its feet. Trying to get on its feet, especially um, after the damage done to their economy from COVID lockdowns. So this increase on top of the economic woes that they're kind of still in. Uh, really shows the sense of urgency that they feel that they're increasing the budget during a time of economic stress. So be aware of that. India is making moves, and we'll get back to Asia later as a very interesting happen thing happened in Thailand. But for now, we're gonna give a brief update on Little Italy, where Mario Draghi the former chair of the European Central Bank 
has effectively been installed as the Prime Minister by Italy's President, Sergio Mattarella. Uh, what does this mean? Uh, it means that the Prime Minister is definitely the opposite of Eurosceptic, um, and it's probably going to give the nationalist right on in Italy a landslide whenever they get the two elections. Um, I, I don't see him being in power for too long unless they do something weird and go full authoritarian but people in italy are really uh how do we say upset with the eu right now so um official or former official of the eu being their prime minister now not by way of a vote either but by way of an appointment uh is probably going to well, piss a lot of Italians off. And, like I said, it's probably going to lead to a landslide victory for Italy's political right. And which may, at that point, have the momentum necessary for a straight-up Italian referendum. Which, at this point, given what I... The a little poll analysis we did back when we were talking about Italy the first time, um, a couple weeks ago... I think if that if they were to have a referendum to leave the EU, it would it would pass with even bigger margins than Brexit. I mean Brexit. Uh, it would pro they would effectively skip the 2016 Brexit vote and go straight for the landslide like you had in 2019 in Britain, where the Tory party I believe effectively swept. So, I see this as as accelerating. It's accelerating the trend towards Euroscepticism, which is kind of ironic given that we have somebody who is the opposite of a Euroskeptic running the country right now. Um, and like as far as the opposite um, end of that spectrum that you can get. And it's I feel that it's going to backfire on all of the pro-EU people in Italy. And, well, I think Italy's going to leave. The perpetual secession crisis is in full swing. Um, we'll have to see where France goes. We'll have to see where Spain goes. Uh, Britain's already gone. Greece is holding their mem Greece is contemplating holding their membership hostage uh, for concessions. The EU is in a bit of a rut. That's all I'll say. That is all I'll say. And when we get back, we will talk about the meat of the story. Alright, we're back, and now we're going to get into the meat. So, we're going to start with Turkey. A good old household name here on the podcast. Turkey, their Ministry of Defense, has reported the completion of air defense systems training, which was being done by Libyan soldiers in the province of Kanya, which is in Turkey itself. And this was done as a part of the Mutual Agreement on Military Training, Cooperation, and Consultancy, uh, this agreement which was made by the two countries a few years ago. And in this training, 20 Libyan soldiers have been trained to use anti-drone defense systems, radar systems, and modern artillery. Wow. Talk about a strategic alliance, um, a new sphere of influence is forming. Uh, 
and it's all about Turkey. And they're starting in a peculiar space. Now, we have talked about Turkey and Libya quite a bit on this little podcast of mine. But this represents a pretty big step towards the new Ottoman Empire that a lot of uh, the other geopolitical analysts and geopolitics people have been viewing coming in the future. This is a massive step towards that as the two militaries are getting closer and closer. uh, Eventually, we might see Turkish peacekeepers in Libya to keep the peace and train up on their use of drone warfare in the desert, bombing um, the uh, military, well, the anti-government forces, the Hafdar, General Hafdar and his forces. We could see in the future a Turkish intervention in Libya, and they'll probably use their drones to bomb Hafdar's forces in the desert when he's sleeping. Or when he's awake, it won't matter too much because they can't really shoot back, you know. So, Turkey or any other foreign power who really steps in could probably end that conflict in a matter of months. Um, Maybe not officially, but, you know, effectively by destroying the fighting force. But Turkey is making moves, making really big power plays. Now, I've talked about the strategic importance of this relationship between Turkey and Libya and what it could mean for a country like, say, Egypt, who uh, would very much do well to not have a direct or indirect land border with the Turkish army, Um, especially when they're going to be preoccupied with their south for a while, Ethiopia's damming up the Blue Nile. Um, Ethiopia has a is in a civil war right now. Sudan is on the is teetering on civil conflict of some kind, or at the very least instability. And Egypt is intervening in the Libyan civil war. The last thing Egypt needs is to be overextended with Turkey's army on their border. That's the absolute worst possible case scenario for Egypt, and it's looking like more and more likely that that's exactly what they're going to get. Poor poor Egypt. Now, the gains Turkey would make, I've, I've talked about this in great length, but I'll cover it again. The gains that Egypt, well not Egypt, that Turkey would make from a conquest of just Egypt alone, just Egypt, food, internal market, Suez Canal. What do I mean by internal market? I mean there's a hundred million people living in Egypt. That's a massive market to force your uh, manufactured goods onto without having to export to other countries. Food. Egypt is a breadbasket, and even if the Nile is diminished from Ethiopia damming it up, which the Turks could always just bomb the dam and then call it a day, um, what's Ethiopia going to do about it? Even if the dam diminishes the Nile, that's still going to be a major breadbasket for Turkey. And even if a couple tens of millions of people die, which is a horrifying thing to think about, you know, in retrospect, wow, 
Because a lot of people in Egypt are dependent on subsistence farming, really. So, damming up the Nile would be a massive humanitarian crisis, oh my goodness. Would Turkey care too much if the population of their subject is diminished? Probably not. I guess it would make them easier to control. But, goodness, that is one horrifying thought. Horrifying food for thought. But, even if the Nile was diminished, Egypt would still be a breadbasket, a major breadbasket for Turkey. And would still have tens of millions of people for them to force their manufactured goods onto. And the third thing, the Suez Canal. Of great strategic importance because it would allow Turkey's navy um, or amphibious force or whatever, what so have you, to project power beyond the Mediterranean and beyond their immediate neighborhood, it would open the door to the rest of the Middle East um, through the waterways, and it would open the door for Turkey to have direct access to Asia, you know, without having to go through an Egyptian middleman, because Egypt controls the Suez Canal right now. But it would also give the Turks control over who in Europe and North Africa could and could not have the easy route to Asia. And my speculation is that they'll probably put some sort of pass. They'll probably put some sort of toll on going through the Suez Canal. It, it doesn't need to be big because like eighteen trillion dollars worth of trade flows through there. Even small tariffs would be a massive boost to the Turkish economy. But, I digress, it appears that that scenario gets more and more likely every day that the Turkish army integrates the Libyan army into itself. And Libya is still preoccupied with civil war, which means Turkey has a massively wide-open window to expand influence in the country, which is exactly what they're doing. And even though Libya is going to be holding uh, an election in December of this year, I have expressed in previous episodes the high possibility that that election is contested, disputed, and then outright ignored as they, the two sides go back to fighting each other. And then somebody's probably going to step in after that to establish peace in the country my guess turkey um either turkey france or america france is going to be preoccupied at that point because they'll be entering into an election year uh, their election is in may of 2022 so the the election in Libya is in December of 2021, and we're talking December 24th of 2021, which means France would be way too preoccupied. They would already be in the election year, really. They would be halfway through it. And they would have like a five months left until the election itself. That's not the time to go getting involved in other people's business, which means France is going to be offline. America, at that point, is probably going to be tied down in either the Middle East or on a path to Asia under the Biden administration. 
which means America might be a bit distracted, maybe not too distracted to intervene, but at least the opportunity to not get involved will be there, which leaves the door open for Turkey, who has put all their cards in to Libya. I expect Turkish intervention after that election. Of some form, would so have you, but very interesting things that we're watching. And now we're going to pop over to the UK because the UK, their government, has officially begun the fast track citizenship program for Hong Kong residents. Um, and we're talking people, Hong Kong nationals, who people who are citizens of Hong Kong. They have put into place a fast track citizenship program for them via the British national overseas status which they'll be applying to people in Hong Kong. Um, and this will effectively allow people of Hong Kong to go to Britain because they'll be given British national overseas status, which is effectively citizenship for the UK. Um, you know, citizenship for the UK, but you're overseas. And the government expects around 300,000 people from Hong Kong to go to the UK over the next five years. And given the costs of moving that far, we can expect really high-end uh, high uh, skills. We can expect pretty moderately wealthy families. Uh, so it's going to be a pretty big boost to the UK tax system and probably a boost to the UK economy if we're, talk if we're really going to go there. And all of this is just going to make the UK look better comparatively uh, in relative to the rest of Europe. Uh, and it's going to be a massive PR win uh, getting people from Hong Kong who are being oppressed by China as China is cracking down on Hong Kong. So, yeah, we'll see where this goes. The UK has amended its trade laws uh, to block future deals with China due to the Uyghur issue in China. So the UK is making taking its hard stance against China and their aircraft carrier battle group uh the Queen Elizabeth and all of its supporting vessels are I believe en route to the South China Sea. I don't know if they got there yet, but that's where they were going to be deployed for their first mission. The UK is entrenching itself there just as the United States appears to be leaving. So, UK, the UK will probably find themselves interwoven into the anti-China coalition, which is economically tied to China, but geopolitically at odds with China. It's a really weird entanglement that's different from what you saw with the last Cold War between the United States and Russia, where both sides were politically and economically opposed to one another. Whereas this time, the there's overlap. A very interesting overlap, but an overlap nonetheless. Um, and I guess I should clarify that the amendment to their trade laws uh, isn't limited to China, but rather it, it, it effectively goes after, and I'm, I'm saying effectively a lot this episode, but... It goes after any nation that the UK believes to have committed genocide. Now, 
for now, that clearly means China, but could be applied to other countries in the future, as I expect that as we move away from unipolar and a bipolar world, with unipolar being like a sole superpower, bipolar being like two superpowers, whereas we enter into this age, this era of multipolar, um, this multipolar age where you have multiple spheres of influence from multiple great powers, like say China will have a sphere of influence, maybe Japan, India will have a sphere of influence, Russia will have their sphere, um, the British will have their sphere as they're reuniting with via Kanzuk. The United States will have its sphere, uh, which Canada will be an overlap between them and Britain, with the United States holding bigger sway, probably. Um, you'll have all these different spheres of influence um, in this multipolar world, and there's probably going to be a return to some of the, well, war crimes that were committed in the last time that we saw an era like this where empires were rising and falling uh, only to be replaced by new empires who would rise and then fall. Basically, a return to human history, really, and all the atrocities that came with it. I... For better, for better or worse, we're going to see a return to that. Some countries will make, uh, well, they'll make out like bandits, and a lot of others are going to get stepped on, along with their people. So, we can expect that list of countries who have committed genocide, uh, or at the very least, the done something that the UK believes to have been genocide, because perspectives are important here, we can expect that list and this amendment to be applied to future countries um, whenever the UK, or maybe it'll just be a political tool at one point or another, where the UK just doesn't like you and goes, oh, look at you, you're doing this, this, and this to these people uh, who the British, regular common British folk have never heard of, and then they'll go, you're banned from trade. So we could see something like that in the future. Um, the bill itself... Passed through the House of Lords with 359 votes to 188, which is nearly a 2 to 1 ratio. So, at the very least, the House of Lords is on board with taking a harsh stance against China. Um, it still hasn't gone through the House of Commons, which is uh, kind of like their House of Representatives for Americans, where the House of Lords is like a Senate. Um, it has yet to go through there, but I, st I still see it being passed. If for no reason other than nobody wants the political backlash for voting against an amendment to not trade with genocidal nations. Uh, that's terrible optics. They'll probably get demolished in their election. Um, nobody wants to deal with that. So I expect for that reason alone, it's probably going to go through. Um, so we'll have to see where that goes. And the moves that the UK makes in this critical moment in their history. Because, you know, they have to get back on their feet. Trade-wise, anyway. Um, especially as the EU is contemplating whether or not to put up hard borders and restrictions against the UK. Which they were doing with the AstraZeneca dispute back uh, literally just about a week ago. So, the UK, it is in their best interest to greatly diversify their trade portfolio. And that's exactly what they're doing. That is exactly what they're doing. Again, we'll see if they can get over the hump 
and invite Russia to the party, or if they'll leave the Russians to their own devices. We'll have to see. We'll have to see. But now we're going to talk about the what I would say is the most interesting part of today's episode. And that is that Thailand uh, is trying to become a major hub of light natural gas in East Asia. Well, I guess, yeah, in East Asia. I was about to say in Asia in general, but that would include the Middle East. So we're, we're not, <laughs> I don't think Thailand can compare to them. But in East Asia, a region of the world that is surprisingly starved for energy resources outside of coal. Well, unless you're Japan, in which case you don't have either oil, natural gas or coal. But Thailand, uh, they have a major energy company that has begun to re-export light natural gas to Japan. And this has inspired confidence in a relatively new plan by the company to sell their imported LNG to major consumers in East Asia, uh, such as China, South Korea, Taiwan, and of course, Japan. Um, so what this is, is that Thailand, this company, is buying light natural gas from, I believe, Qatar. I believe that's where they get it from. I could be mistaken. I currently don't have it on my notes, but I believe that's the country in the Middle East that they buy their light natural gas from. So they buy it, and then they're going to re-export it, the surplus, to other countries in East Asia who need it. And this has inspired a wave of speculation within the country. And I, I brought up literally just seconds ago that Japan doesn't have nat the energy resources like coal oil or natural gas uh, China has lots of coal but everybody appreciates a little bit of natural gas especially Taiwan and South Korea South Korea being a massive net importer of the gas uh, especially in proportion to their economy now this very very interesting thing has been made possible as the energy company, which goes by the name of PTT, uh, they established long-term deals with, again, I believe, Cutter. They established long-term deals for the energy commodity, the commodity being light natural gas. Uh, they established this at a time when the prices were lower. And they effectively sell the surplus energy left over after consumption at home to other countries. So they bring it in on the cheap, get these big long-term deals, and whenever there's a surplus in Thailand itself, they'll sell the excess to other countries in East Asia because nobody else in East Asia has light natural gas. Well, not enough to fulfill their own demand. I'll put it that way. Now, there is deposits of these energies, like oil and light natural gas in the South China Sea, which is a major part of the dispute between China and its neighbors there. But this could be Taiwan's intermediary uh, 
not Taiwan. This could be Thailand acting as an intermediary until major prospecting missions in the South China Sea are able to happen, which is really just ingenious, you know, if you think about it. Uh, at least for the mid, uh, the short to midterm, because it's gonna be a while until anybody's even able to do prospecting for LNG in the South China Sea. Ooh, that rhymes. Um, what can you really say if nobody's they're prospecting but they're not like drilling they haven't set up drilling operations to get it because it's obviously under the water but thailand doing this and alleviating some of the demand for lng in asia in the meantime is i have to say a brilliant move it is big brain beyond belief um, especially because it, it comes at like no cost to them because they already it's not like they're sacrificing themselves to give light natural gas to other countries they're buying it cheap with long term deals so like imagine you get a more a fixed rate mortgage when the interest rate is like 0% <laughs> imagine doing that and then the interest jumps to 5% and everyone's like well where's the homes but instead of that it's you get a long-term deal on light natural gas um, at cheap. And then during the winter months, when the usage of LNG is higher to heat up homes, um, and therefore the cost of it is going to be higher, you then sell your surplus that you bought on the cheap to people who need it now, undercutting the actual suppliers of the gas. It is... Oh my goodness, it's big brain. Yeah, big, big brain. You see why we love geopolitics here? This is a big boy move. I'm just, I'm just so impressed. I'm, <laughs> I'm so impressed and happy that I came across this story. Um, and it's, I'm not the only one who feels this way because this has inspired the government of Thailand to envision a future where the country becomes, quote, an international LNG trading hub, and this is according to Nikkei Asia. International LNG trading hub, where they, oh my goodness. Now, I'll stress that so long as they're able to get the gas for cheap while selling it at lower prices, whenever the cost of LNG goes up, they will be able to reliably pull it off. It all depends on the uh, cost of importing the gas and the demand for it at home. Because um, the demand for it is F basically guaranteed. I caught myself from saying effectively again. The demand for it is guaranteed in East Asia. So the they don't have to worry about other countries needing it so much as they have to worry about other countries um, choosing to buy it from them. Which, considering the massive trade deal, the regional, comprehensive, economic, ah, dang, one of these days, the RCEP, R-C-E-P, uh, Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, there we go. The Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, which Thailand is a part of, along with all the four countries that they would be selling to, which is China, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan, all of them? Wait, no, 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 Taiwan is not a part of it, but the other three are all a part of RCEP. Which means that the biggest 
importers of LNG in East Asia are a part of a free trade agreement with Thailand. So the trade barriers aren't even going to be an issue uh, for now. Anyway, we'll have to see how RCEP plays out. I think it'll go pretty well. Uh, ASEAN did pretty good. So I expect RCEP to hold up. They're already part of a free trade deal, which means that trade barriers aren't aren't a problem. So I guess, again, it goes back to whether or not they can get the, the LNG on the cheap. Because trade barriers on the other end of that spectrum coming from the Middle East could screw them, really. Uh, if they were to put up tariff, if they were to put up restrictions, I should say, on Thailand buying natural gas, um, making it so that they can't buy it for cheap and then resell it uh, to undercut those same producers in East Asia, um, that would kind of throw this whole plan into a rut. But I get, I would expect that now that it has the backing of the government, at least on paper, and by paper I mean in theory, because there's no like a formal agreement, uh, I expect the government to at the very least try their hand at getting something going, some sort of long-term economic agreement so that you don't get trade barriers from the supply side, which would allow them to follow through. On this, and the justification could be we just want natural gas for ourselves, um, and then when they have the surplus, they could be, oh, would you look at that? We have a surplus. I guess we'll just have to sell it at l below market prices to countries that need it most, undercutting the actual suppliers in the process. It's just genius. It's just genius. This is what we this is what we live for in geopol the realm of geopolitics. This is oh my goodness. I am so impressed. I am so proud of Thailand, little Thailand for doing this. <laughs> Basically, these guys are going to make a killing during the winter. All right, cuz again, winter is when LNG consumption is at its highest for, you know, it heats up homes. You use it to heat up your home. And natural, the actual producers, I keep saying that it's going to undercut them, but the actual producers, because the consumption is going to be higher, they're going to be selling it for higher during the winter months because, you know, you have a certain amount of production. And when you have really, really high demand, you got to raise the price. But then somebody who got it lower is going to undercut you. His name is Thailand. Oh, my goodness. It's just beautiful. Just beautiful. Geopolitics at its finest. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come back and then get into the closing segment in just a minute. All right, everyone, we're gonna get into the we're gonna start wrapping things up here. And one of the things that I thought about in the short break between uh, the recordings is that Thailand may not be the only one to try it out, although they could uh, try to take up the market, eat up the LNG market. That would be a gamble, but they could do it. Or maybe they could make themselves so appealing by doing this before everyone else and laying down the infrastructure and the political will, which they already have. They could become the first resort of other countries even as they think about doing it themselves, but then they go, eh, you know, 
it's already done in Thailand. We should just get it from Thailand. I mean, if we can get cheap LNG from Thailand, then why shouldn't we? I mean, we don't want to import it and then be left with a surplus. I mean, what are we going to do then? If everybody does it. So you could see other countries try to do this. But for now, it looks like it's a purely Thai prerogative. So, good looks to Thailand for this ingenious move. But, um, yeah. We have really interesting developments this week, even though today's a bit of a shorter episode. But, uh, lots of things going on in the background. Kind of had to do a bit of digging to get, uh, this much. And I'm... Given that Thailand story, I'm very happy I did. Uh, we'll have to keep our eyes on Italy. We'll have to keep our eyes on the UK. Uh, Turkey is going to demand our attention. And Russia is always there in the background doing beautiful Russian things. Well, not so beautiful if you're on their border, but that's a topic for another day. But, uh, yeah... That's about it. We have seen a bit of an uptick in militant Islamic attacks. um, And we'll see how regional powers handle their regional issues. Or we'll see if the Biden administration decides to go all in on world policing. A lot of things have yet to be seen. A lot of things have yet to be determined. But a lot of things are already in motion. And we can just look at that and... speculate as to where it goes we like to speculate here at geopolitics this week in geopolitics but that's all i have for today really short episode but i had to do a lot of digging but i do hope you enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast and even though the episode is short we can still see that the episode the episode that the world is changing and we are gonna have fun watching thailand and it change together now i have been your host hi sean wade and you've been listening to this week in geopolitics so till we meet again next monday servus